Fierce Conversations by Susan Scott, Chapter 1. Principle 1. Master the courage to interrogate reality. It ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. Mark Twain. No plan survives its collision with reality. The problem is, reality has an irritating habit of shifting at work and at home, seriously complicating our favourite fantasies. And while you may not like reality, you cannot successfully argue with it. Reality generally wins. Whether it's the reality of the marketplace, the reality of a spouse's changing needs, or the reality of our own physical or emotional well-being. In Elizabeth George George's novel, A Banquet of Consequences, we meet a man named Charlie. His own life had ground to a halt, so it was difficult to take in the reality that for everyone else, the struggle went on. That's what it was, he'd decided, an eternal struggle to come to terms with realities that shifted from day to day. One day you were going about your business, secure in the illusion that you had arrived at the exact point for which you'd been aiming. The next day you found yourself on a runaway train about to derail. He had known this was possible, of course, but the level at which he knew it was the level at which, but the level at which he knew it was the level at which he applied it to other people and not to himself. Things change, the world changes, you and I change. Business colleagues, life partners, friends, customers, we're all changing all the time. As Lillian Hellman wrote, people change and forget to tell one another. Not only do we neglect to share this with others, but we are skilled at masking it to ourselves. It's no wonder things go sideways and relationships disintegrate. Sometimes, here, just happens. Following the high-tech carnage, crashing economies, corporate layoffs and terrorist attacks of 2001, which altered our individual and collective realities in a heartbeat, it would have been easy to conclude that life had grown too unpredictable, that there was nothing to do but hang on and muddle through as best you could. But we're resilient, and over time we recovered, and then the world was confronted with ISIS. More companies were found to, were found to have put financial gain ahead of customer safety and well-being. Governments went bankrupt, and the 2016 political debate in the United States left voters confused, frustrated, disgusted, frightened and angry. An us-versus-them mentality created a wider divide than ever before. I found myself muttering my mother's trademark comment, What fresh hell is this? This is nothing new. In February 2002, Robert Kaiser and David Ottaway wrote an article for the Washington Post about the fragility of US-Saudi ties. Brent Scowcroft, National Security Advisor to the first President Bush, is quoted as saying... Have we, the United States and Saudi Arabia, understood each other particularly well? Probably not. And I think, in a sense, we probably avoid talking about the things that are the real problems between us because it's a very polite relationship. We don't get all that much below the surface. The image that comes to mind is water skiing. It's loads of fun and you can get a tan, but putting on an oxygen tank and going below the surface in full scuba deer is an entirely different experience. I've got nothing against small talk, water skiing, on certain occasions, but if we really want to get it right, whatever it is, we have to explore what is underneath in the sometimes murky depths of a conversation, a company, a relationship.
One thing's for sure, for companies, the traditional practice of, of annual strategic planning sessions is a thing of the past. It no longer works for a company's executive team to spend two days on retreat, determine their goals, roll out an action plan and call it a year. Team members must reconvene quarterly to address the question, what has changed since we last met? As a company president recently admitted, I'd like to get a firm grasp on reality, but somebody keeps moving it. The American economist Thomas Sowell said, It takes considerable knowledge just to realise the extent of your own ignorance. It's humbling, that's for sure. The best we can hope for, to quote business consultant Robert Bridges, is the masterful administration of the unforeseen. Stuff happens, internally, externally, some you can affect, some you can't. Life is curly. From working closely with corporate leaders, I know very well how quickly reality can change. The customer responsible for a significant piece of your business files for bankruptcy. Valuable employees are recruited away from you. Your competition comes out with a great new whiz-bang product that you're not prepared to match or beat. New technology renders your product product or service obsolete. The economy goes upside down. You go upside down, lost in the complexity of your organisation's goals and challenges. And yet there is no stopping, no taking time off, no shirking of responsibilities. I began my second book, Fierce Leadership, a bold alternative to the worst, best practices of business today, which could have been titled A Complete Guide to the Freaking Obvious, with this memo. Memo to leaders. Congratulations, you are a leader. It's a heavy load, but someone has to do it. The primary focus of your organisation is growth. To help in this regard, it is your duty to lead change, manage and motivate a multi-generational workforce and execute initiatives that impact the top line and the bottom line while delivering short-term results. You must demonstrate agility, speed, inclusiveness, strategic acumen and innovation manage uncertainty and risk, and mitigate the impacts of globalisation, offshoring, a recession, global warming, and the price of oil, etc, etc, etc. If you fail, darkness will cover the earth, the stock value will plummet, and chaos will reign. Hence, a few suggestions. The memo continues with 10 suggestions for leaders. If you want to hear them and enjoy a laugh, take a break and watch my TED Talk, The Case for Radical Transparency. The point is, leadership demands all we've got and then some, even when a shift in reality provides great opportunities. Perhaps you suddenly landed that huge customer you've been pursuing but never did, never... (laughs) Perhaps you suddenly landed that huge customer you've been pursuing but never believed you'd get, whose expectations you're unequipped to meet. In the last quarter of 2001, the owner of a crab fishery in the Bering Sea scrambled to fulfil twice the normal orders for crab meat from his customers in Japan. Why the demand? Following the September the 11th terrorist attack, many Japanese cancelled their travel plans and stayed home. And while they were home, they ate a lot of crab. Few of us would have foreseen a link between terrorism and the consumption of crab. It would seem companies are stressed either because their sales are too low or because their sales are too high. As individuals, we're stressed either because we don't have enough of the things we want or because we have all of the things we want. We're either shedding or acquiring. Either way, happiness eludes us. 
Or perhaps you realise that you're operating at a new level of effectiveness in a particular area of your life. Life feels like your favourite class at school, with a rush of learning every day. You've received a promotion or you've fallen in love with a wonderful person. Whatever it is, something spectacular has happened and you don't want to blow it. It feels like acing a final exam and winning the lottery on the same day. Exhilarating and a touch frightening. You've been given a valuable gift, a thrilling new reality, and you know it. And in some corner of your heart, a loving voice suggests, Listen up, bucko, you better make some serious changes or you're going to blow this deal. Let's face it, the world will not be managed. Life is curly. Don't try to straighten it out. In this chapter, I'll introduce you to two conversational models that do a bang-up job of interrogating reality. The beach ball approach and mineral mineral rights. We'll begin with the beach ball approach, which transforms typical meetings into intelligent, spirited conversations. Beach ball reality. If you're running an organisation or an area within an organisation, you'll find yourself continually thwarted in your best efforts to accomplish the goals of the team unless reality is regularly and thoroughly examined. You know this. Describing reality, however, can get complicated. Let me show you what I mean. Imagine that you're the CEO of a global company whose organisation chart looks something like this. So it has a chart and it says, where do you live? At the top, there's board of directors, CEO, chief operating officer, chief financial officer, chief information officer, chief marketing officer, and then North America, Europe, Asia, South America, finance and accounting, corporate marketing, human resources, product development, information technology. You send a question out to your senior execs worldwide, something like, Given the resources available to us, where should we focus them? Or, what topic should we prioritise during our next strategy session? Depending on where where they live in the organisation, you wouldn't expect to get the same answer from everyone. The chief information officer, officer in Asia would understandably have different priorities than the head of HR in North America, as well they should, and what matters to each of them is important. Years ago, I was privileged to speak at an event with Madeleine Albright. During Q&A, she was asked, if you could give all of the world leaders one piece of advice, what would it be? She responded, I'd tell them, what matters anywhere matters everywhere. I loved her response, and it's certainly true within a company of any size. What matters anywhere in a company matters everywhere in a company, or should. To simplify, think of your company as a beach ball. Picture the beach ball as having a red stripe, a green stripe, a yellow stripe, a blue stripe, an orange stripe, a white stripe. Everyone in your organisation is standing on a different stripe on the corporate beach ball and is is experiencing reality from that perspective. Imagine that you're standing on the blue stripe. The blue stripe is where you live, every day, day after day. If someone asks you what colour your company is, you look down around your feet and you say, my company's blue. How do you know? You're surrounded by blue. You open a drawer and it's full of blue. You pick up the phone and listen to blue. You walk down the hall and smell blue. Every day you eat, drink and breathe blue. From where you stand, the company is as blue as it gets. Cobalt blue, to be precise. So here you are in a meeting, laying out your strategy to launch an exciting new project. And of course, you're explaining that this strategy is brilliant because it takes into consideration the blueness of the company. 
Your CFO listens intently. Her brow is furrowed. She lives on the red stripe. All day she's up to her armpits in red. Cash flow is tight. She takes a deep breath and ventures. I'm excited about this project. But when I hear you describe our company as blue, I wonder if you've studied the latest cash flow projection. I'm dealing with a lot of red these days. Can we talk about this? While many leaders do not welcome opposing views, you're highly evolved. So you respond, okay, put that red on the table and let's take a look at it. And the debate is on. Blue, red, blue, red, blue, red. Meanwhile, your director of manufacturing is starting to squirm. He lives on the green stripe. He is thinking, man, oh man, the timing on this project couldn't be worse. But every time I share concerns, I'm viewed as a naysayer. Besides, it's nearly lunchtime and no one will thank me for complicating this conversation even further. Your VP of engineering, who lives on the yellow stripe, has a strongly held differing opinion. But his experience has taught him that differences of opinion lead to raised voices and strong emotions after which someone shuts down, having been bullied into silence by the loudest voices. In his experience, for some people, win-win translates to, I win, I win again. And the last time he stuck his toe over the line with a controversial idea, the most vocal member of the team shot it off. So this key executive, who is privy to useful information, pulls off an amazing feat. He shrinks his subatomic particles and disappears. This is possible, you know. Think about all the times a meeting has ended and you found yourself trying to remember if an invitee was present. He was, he just made himself invisible. Some people are extraordinarily talented at this. They may be brilliant, but disappointingly and irritatingly, they neither fish nor cut bait. They are neither hot nor cold. They are the people on your corporate beach ball who appear to be, at best, politely indifferent and at worst, completely unconcerned about the decisions being made. The corporate nod. The ability to hide out at meetings was so prevalent at one company I worked with that the behaviour eventually got a name. Picture a leader holding forth from one end of the boardroom table. She is espousing the cleverness of the current strategy. Like all good leaders, at some point she offers an opportunity for others to respond. Something like, so, what do you think? It gets quiet around the table, unnaturally quiet, like the quiet before a tornado when birds fall silent and not a leaf stirs and a bilious sky warns of an approaching storm. Around the table, eyes fall. Each individual practices the art of personal stealth technology, attempting to drop beneath the leader's radar screen. At one point, the leader calls on some poor bloke who is less skilled at vanishing than his team members. Jim, what do you think of the plan? Jim gets that look on his face like a cat occupied in the litter box, sort of far away as if to indicate that he's not really here and neither are you. The leader waits Jim out. Jim has to do something. Jim nods. His head moves up and down as he gazes fixedly at a spot on the boardroom table. The leader smiles. And what about you, Elaine? The leader persists. Elaine steps into the litter box, head down, eyes averted. She nods and so forth around the table as the leader scans the room. The corporate nod. Satisfied, the leader concludes, good, we launch on Monday. In the funnies, 
Characters' thought, thought bubbles float overhead, capturing the unfiltered notions bobbing about in their heads. We love the Dilbert comic strip because the characters actually say what they're thinking and it's often what we have thought ourselves. If we could read the thought bubbles floating over the heads of people sitting around that boardroom table, the very people charged with implementing the strategy, we might see, there's no way we can do that. This is crazy. Or this sucker is going down. Time to dust off my resume. Or wonder if my family would notice if I bought a ticket to Barbados and disappeared. We don't know what people are thinking unless they tell us, and even then there's no guarantee they're telling us what they really think. Yet, if asked, most people want to hear the truth, even if it is unpalatable. A friend who is a high-level executive, intimidating to many, recently promoted a courageous employee who walked into his office with a large bucket of sand and poured it onto the rug. "'What the hell are you doing?' demanded my friend. The employee replied, I just figured I'd make it easier for you to bury your head in the sand on the topic I keep bringing up and you keep avoiding. You can be assured this employee would not have taken such a bold and risky step if he were not convinced that the company was about to embark on a road to ruin. After a sleepless night, he had determined that he owed it to himself, his colleagues, his customers and his leader to either make himself heard or leave the organisation. He told his boss... Everyone's in-basket and out-basket are full, but I'm concerned we're avoiding the too-hard basket. The conversation following this outrageous act interrogated reality, provoked learning, tackled a tough challenge and enriched the relationship. It's no small thing that as a result, the company made the change needed to avoid a potential disaster. If you're in a similar situation, I don't advise you to buy a bucket of sand. However, do recognise that there is something within us that responds deeply to people who level with us, who do not pamper us or suggest our compromises for us, but instead describe reality so simply and compellingly that the truth seems inevitable and we cannot help but recognise it. And if you're the boss who deserves a bucket of sand, you may have been defending yourself with the complaint, I pump out energy and it's unilateral, nothing comes back. Perhaps you're not allowing it to come back. Taking stock. The corporate nod shows up in living rooms as well as boardrooms. Companies and marriages derail temporarily or permanently because people don't say what they're really thinking. No one really asks. No one really answers. Ask yourself, what are my goals when I converse with people? What kinds of things do I usually discuss? Are there other topics that would be more important given what's actually going on? How often do I find myself, just to be polite, saying things I don't mean? How many meetings have I sat in where I knew the real issues were not being discussed? And what about the conversations in my marriage? What issues are we avoiding? If I were guaranteed honest responses to any three questions, whom would I question and what would I ask? What has been the economical, emotional and intellectual cost to the company of not identifying and tackling the real issues? What has been the cost to my marriage? What has been the cost to me? When was the last time I said what I really thought and felt? What are the leaders in my organisation pretending not to know? What are members of my family pretending not to know? What am I pretending not to know? How certain am I that my team members are deeply committed to the same vision? How certain am I that my life partner is deeply committed to the vision I hold for our future? 
If nothing changes regarding the outcomes of the conversations within my organisation, what are the implications for my own success and career, for my department, for key customers, for the organisation's future? What about my marriage? If nothing changes, what are the implications for us as a couple, for me? What is the conversation I've been unable to have with senior executives, with my colleagues, with my direct reports, with my customers, with my life partner, and most important, with myself, with my own aspirations that, if I were able to have, might make the difference, might change everything? Are my truths in the way? It would be a gross oversimplification to suggest that each of us simply needs to tell the truth. Will Schutz, who taught seminars on honesty for decades, suggested that truth is the grand simplifier, that relationships and organisations are simplified, energised and clarified when they exist in an atmosphere of truth. Yet Schutz acknowledged that truth itself is far from simple and, I will add, not always welcome. I came across this comment overheard at a Washington DC bar. Truth is like poetry and most people effing hate poetry. Or, as author Flannery O'Connor suggested, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you odd. Pause for a moment and think about the truth. How do we even know someone is telling the truth? Perhaps a better question is, what is the truth? And does anybody own it? What each of us believes to be true simply reflects our views about reality. Our stripe on the beach ball, if you will. When reality changes, and when doesn't it, and when we ignore competing realities, the red, green and yellow stripes, if we dig in our heels regarding a familiar or favoured reality, we may fail. Perhaps what we thought was the truth is no longer the truth in today's environment. The question isn't whether your beliefs are right or wrong. Most of us can defend our beliefs up one side of the room and down the other. We can give examples, all kinds of proof, tell elaborate stories that back up what we believe to be the truth because we've been there, done that, and have the data and the scars to prove it. And we're often adept at creating a compelling reality distortion field to prove ourselves right, even though our potentially flawed or incomplete version of reality may be causing pain. It's an important concept to grapple with, our internal filters, our context. It has to do with idea number three that I shared in the introduction. All conversations are with myself and sometimes they involve other people. When we were children, we absorbed the beliefs, opinions and attitudes of our parents and teachers. As young adults, we took on those of our employers, our colleagues. At some point, our beliefs morphed into truths. In the love song of Miss Queenie Hennessy by Rachel Joyce, a character reflects, perhaps I took my mother more literally than she intended, but I applied her rule to my life. After all, we're all searching for them, the rules. We pick them up from the strangest places, and if they appear once, we can live a whole lifetime by them, regardless of the unhappiness and difficulty they may later bring. The question to ask, if you can find the courage, is... Are my beliefs working for me, for my company, for my team, for my family? How are my beliefs shaping my life, my career, my relationships? Are they getting the results I want, the results others want? Am I and others happy as a result of my beliefs, my truths? Have any of my strongly held beliefs resulted in a negative suddenly? 
What truths am I adopting because I agree with them? And what truths am I deflecting or ignoring because they don't fit with my worldview? There is a picture of a box. It says opinions, attitudes, beliefs and truths. And there's arrows going in different directions from it. Our context determines how we experience the content of our lives. In fact, I'll go so far as to say that your context is running your life. Quite simply, your context influences your behaviour and your behaviour produces your results. Beliefs leads to behaviour, behaviour leads to results. For example, if I believe that someone in my company is a jerk who doesn't wish me well, I will put the worst possible interpretation on any emails that person sends me, reading bluntness and rudeness where I might read efficiency in correspondence with others. The relationship is doomed. If I believe that life is a struggle, I will behave in ways guaranteed to prove myself right and even to deepen and prolong the struggle. And what are my beliefs about my job? How do I view the work that I do? If I'm a bricklayer, am I laying bricks, building a wall or building a cathedral? Same same job description, tools, salary, benefits, etc. Yet totally different experiences of the work. Different narratives, different contexts, different outcomes. To show you what I mean, look at the chart below and check the beliefs you hold. Don't check what you think you ought to check. Check the beliefs that you really hold. There will probably be checks in both columns. I am going to read down the left column first. Disclosing my real thoughts and feelings is risky. Most people can't handle the truth, so it's better not to say anything. It's important that I convince others that my point of view is correct. I will gain approval and promotions by exchanging my personal identity for my organisation's identity. Reality can't be changed, there's no point in fighting it. As an expert, my job is to dispense advice. I'll keep my mouth shut, this is a job for the experts. I need to ignore what I'm feeling in my gut. Just put my head down and do my job. And now the right column. Disclosing what I really think and feel frees up energy and expands possibilities. Though I have trouble handling the truth sometimes, I'll keep telling it and inviting it from others. Exploring multiple points of view will lead to better decisions. My personal identity will be expanded as my colleagues and I diverse points of view, exchange diverse points of view. Perhaps we can change reality with thoughtful conversations. My job is to involve people in the problems and strategies affecting them. My point of view is as valid as anyone else's. I know what I know and what I know I need to act on. Let's say that you and many others in your organisation hold the belief that disclosing your thoughts and feelings is risky. That's understandable and is certainly a commonly held belief. It's just that, if that's what you believe, when your boss asks you what you think, you'll duck and dodge. Give the answer you think he or she wants to hear or claim not to have any opinion whatsoever. Where does that leave you? Nowhere different than you were before. And you certainly haven't distinguished yourself as a high potential in your organisation. If you're the boss stuck in ye old leadership style, it leaves you pleased that you have so many employees who suck up to you. 
If you go down the list of beliefs and ask yourself how people holding those beliefs will behave, you'll recognise the beliefs that will produce the behaviour and the results you hope for as, as well as those that need shifting. I would label the column on the left negative and the ones on the right positive, not because the beliefs are right or wrong, but because they produce negative or positive results for you as an individual and for your organisation. I could suggest that if you recognise that a belief you hold isn't working all that well, now would be a good time to shift your belief to something that will produce better results. Just change your internal operating system. Reboot. Right, I'm the first to admit that wouldn't be easy on a good day, much less when you're stressed or struggling. Besides, no one likes to be wrong about his or her beliefs, and it takes guts to admit we may have been wrong about something or someone. British writer W. Somerset Maugham wrote of a character, Like all weak men, he laid an exaggerated stress on not changing one's mind. We do have a right, at times an obligation, to change our beliefs though the longer we've held on to them, the harder it is to admit they haven't served us or anyone else for a very long time. <clears throat> Circling back to beliefs that govern our conversations and cause us to misinterpret others, there is a responsibility here to be clear, to check for meaning, and most important, to examine the context in which we experience our conversations. Cardinal Newman said, we can believe what we choose, we're answerable for what we choose to believe. If your goal is evolution, work on changing your behaviour. If your goal is revolution, work on changing your context. How often are we putting a negative spin on someone's words that doesn't belong there? How often are we misinterpreting what people say to us? Joseph Pine, Order of the Experience Economy, suggests... The experience of being understood versus interpreted is so compelling you can charge a mission. There's a universal longing to be known, to be understood. Unfortunately, the experience is rare. During fierce conversations, people don't cling to their positions as the undeniable truth. Instead, they consider their views as hypotheses to be explored and tested against others. While we may find it easier to stick with the reality we've defined by operating... Most of the time, from one colour stripe on the beach ball, our competitive advantage is to learn from our changing realities and respond quickly. If we entertain multiple realities, we create possibilities that did not exist for us before. Who owns the truth about what colour your company is? The answer, every single person in your company, including the entry-level service representative and the guy on the loading dock, owns a piece of the truth about what colour your company is. The operative word is peace. No one, not even the CEO, owns the entire truth because no one can be in all places at all times. And of course, this applies to our personal relationships. Each of us owns a piece of the truth about what's going on in our relationships. And so does our partner, so do our kids. And I wouldn't be surprised if the dog had a suggestion or two he'd like to offer. Multiple competing realities existing simultaneously. This is true and this is true and this is true. As Anne Lamott writes, reality is unforgivingly complex. Since there is no the truth in any business, the question is, what is the best a truth for today? We're more likely to discover the truth we most need to understand today by demonstrating that everyone has a truth at the corporate table. 
that all voices are welcome, that no matter what our area of expertise, each of us has insights and ideas about other aspects of the organisation. And while each of us may know a better way for the company to do something, none of us knows more than the sum of everyone's ideas. My friend Tom Seeberger, who has led many fierce trainings, recently said, thought leadership is a team sport. So true. In addition to diversity, as we normally think of it, we need diversity of thought. Otherwise, it's almost impossible to demolish the ensconced. Fierce conversations are a marvellous cure for excessive certitude. In other words, whatever you're sure of, don't be. Later in this chapter, I'll introduce you to a powerful conversational model for interrogating reality with anyone on any topic. But first, be reminded that one of the goals in a fierce conversation is to get everyone's reality out on the table so it can be interrogated. Everyone's. Many a corporate leader has groaned upon considering this point. I've got a business to run. Taking the time to interrogate everyone's piece of the truth about what colour the company is could take forever. Not always. I've had fierce conversations that lasted only a few seconds. More about those later. But it's true. Fierce conversations often do take time. The problem is, not having them takes longer. Most leaders have learned from experience that until the multiple, sometimes conflicting realities of key individuals and constituents have been acknowledged and explored, implementing a plan can be a decidedly tentative endeavour. To the degree that you resist or disallow the exploration of differing realities in your workplace, you'll spend time, money, energy and emotion cleaning up the aftermath of plans quietly but effectively torpedoed by individuals who resent the fact that their experience, opinions and strongly held beliefs are apparently of little interest to the organisation. A leader's job is to get it right for the organisation, not to be right. And this requires beach ball meetings that are clear, compelling, focused, energised. A beach ball meeting isn't always about solving problems. It can be about exciting things, a new opportunity, a key decision, a strategy that will help you achieve your goals. There are four stages of interrogating reality using the beach ball method. The first is to prepare for the meeting by identifying the issue. The second is deciding who should be part of the conversation. The third is facilitating the conversation by inviting input from every person in the room. Let's look at the first, preparing for the meeting by identifying the issue.